Well, um, Alan is a head counselor at camp this month, so our house has been converted to a bachelor pad, and uh, we need every amount of time we have to get it shaped up before she gets home. Uh, Well, when the girls arrived at the camp where she is working at, they tend to arrive with trunks, and the trunks often have a bunch of stickers on them. And it's kind of fun to look at the stickers. They talk about places they like and things they like. It's almost a way to introduce themselves to their fellow campers. And so Alan sent me a picture of one she thought I'd get a kick out of, and it's a sticker of Jesus. Uh, You know, long hair, it's parted in the middle, nice and silky, with a beard, pasty white, looks like an Italian guy with a flowing robe, you know, Jesus. And, and this picture, is, he's peering around a corner, looking down a hallway. So this picture of Jesus peering down a corner, looking, looking at you down a hallway, and he just says these words, I saw that. And uh, I just wondered whether the girl herself had put that sticker on her trunk, or whether as she left the house, her mother had put that sticker on the trunk. Um, but what does it convey about Jesus. As funny as it is, what does it communicate to us? Um, Aside from almost certainly incorrectly physically picturing him, uh, it communicates Jesus is kind of lurking around like a persnickety nanny trying to catch you doing something wrong. You may have heard somebody say to you, like, don't mess up, Jesus is watching you. And it's that view we can have of him. The question is, does that influence your view of Jesus? Uh, Do you reduce him to that? And and to the degree you do, how does that impact your worship of him? And so the second commandment is such an important commandment for us. The second commandment warns us against and, and prohibits our fallen drive to conceive of God in a way he isn't and therefore to worship him in a way he doesn't want us to. And so let's read Exodus 20, verse six through eight, the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And the grass withers, the flowers fade, and this good word, it's a word of grace. Uh, it endures forever. So I have four points. What's the rule mean? Then what's the reason for it? And then what's the result of it? And then how do we keep it? So what's the rule mean? Well, we first need to relate it to the first commandment. All the commandments hang together. So let's relate it 
to the first one. The first one says, you shall have no other gods before me. And that commandment prohibits the worshiping of the wrong God, of a false God, a substitute savior, an idol. God's saying in that commandment, which is just beautiful, I love you and I want your exclusive love and undivided loyalty. I'm your husband and I've made a marriage covenant with you and I don't want you sharing the love you owe to me with anyone or anything else. In fact, I created you and redeemed you to love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And the only way you're gonna love others and love other things well is if you love me first. And so I want you to treasure me above all other things. I want you to trust in me more than you trust in anything else. I want you to ask me when you're in need and not as much other people and things. And I want you to thank me and be grateful for me for all the gifts I bestow upon you. Well, what does the second commandment add to the first commandment? Well, God's already forbidden the worship of wrong gods in the first commandment. Therefore, the second commandment forbids worshiping the right God in the wrong way. Or again, the first God made clear who is to be worshiped. So in the second, he instructs us about how he's to be worshiped. Or still again, the first stresses the true God, the object of our worship. The second stresses the true worship, the manner of our worship, and both are important to God. It's not just important to have the right God, God wants us to view him in the right way. God takes his worship seriously. Uh, Think again about the passage we read in the conviction of the gospel section. John 4, 23 through 24, such a, a central passage. In that passage, it said, Jesus says, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The kind of people who worship him in spirit and in truth, the Father is seeking them to worship him. Uh, Jesus sums up the Father's saving activity In the Son, the reason for the Son becoming flesh, the reason for the Son going to the cross, the reason for the Son resurrecting from the dead, he sums it up by saying, through all that, through this work, what the Father's doing is he's seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's so emphatic because it's the only time in all of Scripture that it ever says the Father is seeking anything from his redeemed people, his adopted children, and that's what he's seeking. And your happiness is wrapped up in his worship. So do you view your worship in Lord's Day and throughout the week as this important 
Again, the title of our series, Redeemed for Relationship, it goes together beautifully. So the second commandment teaches us God's not only concerned that we worship him, but also that we worship him as he's prescribed for us, as he's told us to, not just in the way that suits us according to our tastes or our traditions, our priorities or our preferences, one way I've liked to look at this during this week is according to you know, that book by Chapman, The Love Languages. It's a marriage book, right? I'm thinking of God as, as husband to his church, Christ specifically. So when you get married, you pledge to forsake all others and join yourself to one person. You've got that right. You've got the right object of your exclusive marital love. But then once you get married, you realize this person you're married to experiences and feels love in a way a little distinct, most likely, from the way that you feel or experience love. She might say, I like gifts, and you might not be the best gift giver. She might say, you might say, I like words of affirmation. She might struggle with appropriate words of affirmation. It would be damaging to the marriage to say, I'm gonna love you the way I want to love you, I'm not concerned with how you want to be loved. That just wouldn't fly. But how much more God, who's the husband to his bride, more even, or in addition to that even, who's our creator and redeemer, creator who made us and designed us, and redeemer who bought us back, how much more do you and I seek to love him in the way he desires for us to love him. And that's what the second commandment is urging upon us. So the second commandment specifically says this. It's, it, it's a specifically a ban, a forbidding of two things. The second commandment forbids the making of an image to represent God whether that's a carved wood or chiseled stone, engraved metal or a painting, what have you, the making of an image to represent God, and then the worship of that image. Uh, it disallows any physical representation of himself, of anything in the sky, sun, moon, stars, birds, or on the earth, creatures, humans, or in the water, some sort of fish. Pagans did that all over the place. But the reason it disallows these physical representations of himself is because of the propensity or the purpose that the people would then bow down to them and serve them. That is, that they'd give them their worship. So essentially it comes down to don't make it so you won't worship it. It's using these objects that you fabricate in fashion as an aid to worship, to set the mood for worship, to access God through them, to communicate with God by them, to serve as a channel of his presence to you, or even to serve in a way to control him and get him to serve you in a certain way. All those means. So the command in itself doesn't rule out artwork. 
It's not just a graven image of anything. God loves art. Uh, The creation is his artistry. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In some sense, the the creation proclaims and teaches us of who God is. Uh, The tabernacle and temple had beautiful sculptures and patterns woven into the curtains. Beautiful. God loves artwork, yet it's noteworthy. In the tabernacle, the temple, there never was an image or likeness of God. One of the best examples is the Ark of the Covenant, this golden box. It was just beautiful, wonderfully crafted. And so on the the top of the Ark, you had a lid. It was called a mercy seat. And on either end, you had these cherubim, these gold, like majestic angels facing each other with their wings outstretched over the mercy seat. Beautiful. They, they, they signify the, the, the presence of God, the throne room of God. Those are those special angels that guard the very presence of God. So we're into a very holy thing. It was in the Holy of Holies. And yet what's so important to note is though they mark where the throne of God would be right over the mercy seat, that over the mercy seat, there is no throne physically represented. It's vacant and empty. Why? because there is not to be any likeness or image of God. Uh, The imagery of God's presence in scripture is stunning. We need to fill our minds with it. But his likeness is always protected. You think of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, it's this booming mountain with a trumpet and, and thunder and lightning and fire and cloud. I mean, an amazing manifestation of the presence of God. And yet, when Deuteronomy 4.12 talks about what the people saw on the mountain, it says this, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Though the fire and the cloud manifested God's presence, they weren't the image or likeness of God. The fire symbolizes his holiness. And the cloud shows his glory, but shows it in a way that can draw near to people. But it's distinct from the image and likeness of God. What what Moses is saying through Deuteronomy is, what comes out most importantly through all of that is the image wasn't seen, but God's voice was heard. And so it exalts the voice and word of God. He's saying, just like Romans 10 does, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. He speaks, there's a voice. And that's how God wants to reveal himself. Well, what about images of Jesus? And this is when it takes a lot more conversation, a lot more. And, and, and believers can have a little bit different opinions on this. There's a strong current in the Reformed Church, our our Westminster standards teach it, that we shouldn't make any image of Jesus because to do so would depict him only in his humanity. But for Jesus to be the Christ, he's the person of the Son of God joined to a real human nature, and you can't depict that. It would be to separate his natures. And so they would say, don't make an image of Jesus. 
However, on the flip side, there are others that would say, well, celebrating Jesus' humanity is important. It's important. Underscoring that he's a real man is important. Uh, one, one pastor, uh, DeYoung, counsels, let's be cautious but not be absolute here. It's the reason and the type of image. Uh, one thing is Jesus in the storybook Bible, uh, where he looks just like the other characters, and the most important thing is telling the story. It would be odd to have an empty space there in the story. But another thing is to have a statue of Jesus on a crucifix in a church with an altar in front of him and candles and a kneeling bench for people to pray and to give their offerings and even to weep and to worship. It's a totally different thing. One thing is maybe a Rembrandt painting where Jesus is discreetly pictured not to draw us to his face but to tell the story, or even depicting Jesus as a shepherd to bring up those images. Another is a full-on portrait that aims to accurately depict Jesus and draw us to his likeness. Like that little bumper, like that little sticker, how much does that impact my view and my imagination as I worship God? But these things need to be wrestled with. The important thing is to know that God cares about it. Think of the golden calf, it's a clear example. If Aaron had just fashioned a golden calf because he loved cows, all well and good, beautiful. But think of what happened in the golden calf. The people got tired of waiting for Moses. They got a little frustrated, a little stir crazy. And so they look at Aaron and say, make us gods. And so Aaron asks for all their gold earrings. He fashions a golden calf with them. And the people announce, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then Aaron proclaims, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. The intent wasn't to worship another god. It was to worship Yahweh through the image of a calf. It's a breaking of the second commandment. The intent wasn't to worship a false god, but to worship the true God in their way, according to their imaginations of him. We ask, why did they pick a calf? I mean, they didn't think Yahweh actually looked like a calf or a bull. But you see, those that worshiped Baal used bulls as, as images, as icons, as statues. But even the Baal worshipers didn't actually think that the god Baal looked like a bull. Rather, they presented him that way because they wanted to symbolize power. And so what they wanted out of Baal through this bull who was so strong and so powerful was that they believed their invisible god inhabited the image and if they made the right rituals towards the image, that God, their god, would exert his power in the way they wanted it giving their lands fertility and giving people fertility. And so it depicted a certain attribute of their God that they wanted to get control of or use for their benefit. And that's the point of worshiping their God through an image. And that was the point of Baal, of this calf that Aaron had created to highlight an attribute of God and have him present, interact with him through it. 
Well, we don't approach God that way, do we? We don't fall into that sort of sin pattern, do we? We see the, the point is that the root of this isn't the image itself, it's the heart of man that produces the image. Calvin calls us this perpetual factory of idols. If you think of your heart as this assembly line, just churning them out. And your heart being a sinful heart is just always gonna gravitate to the creature and not the creator. We're always tempted to imagine God in a way he's not. All of us. I mean, in sanctification is learning to think of God in the way he is. Notice how imagine and image are similar, similar words. You've got a, a very active imagination when it comes to God. I mean, that camp sticker illustrates it. What, what's my view of God and how is that gonna lead me to worship? Have you ever heard someone say, I think of God this way, or, or my God wouldn't do that, or my God isn't like that. And in that statement, what that person is doing, we, we may sympathize deeply with why they're doing it, but what they're doing is they're reducing God to, to one attribute or trying to eliminate certain attributes. It's a, it's a different God. It's one to say God is loving, but he's not holy or he's not sovereign in his purposes or he's not just. I mean, do we, we may not actually say that as a people, but you see, when we settle into a sin pattern and kind of make peace with it, you know that feeling when you just kind of get tired of, of wrestling against sin and you just kind of stay there. You stay there. It's an awful place, but you, you know that feeling. And, and what, you're, what you're saying by that resignation, or maybe you've made peace with it, is you're saying, I'm gonna focus on God's generosity and his kindness and his mercy, and I'm gonna move to the margins of my mind his righteousness and his holiness and his justice. And what I really want to say is God is really tolerant and indulgent of me, and I'm just gonna stay here a while. It's, you're breaking the second commandment. Or, or let's look at the other way. And, and, and we struggle with this too. Sometimes we view God as harsher and more severe than he is. We have that sticker view that Jesus is always trying to catch us up. Think of the parable of the talents. The servant, you know, there's one servant that doesn't put his gifts to work. You know, the, the master gives the servants a bunch of gifts and number of them like, throw them into activity, but one of them hides them, you remember. And so the master comes back and he like questions, like, why didn't you put your talent to work? And, and the servant looks at him and says, master, I knew you were a hard man and I was afraid. So I hid the gifts you gave me because I didn't want to screw up. That's a big time shame voice. That's breaking the second commandment. And it's liberating for you to know that's breaking the second commandment. You are not viewing God as he's revealed in scripture. And it's catching you up in your life. Um, 
Let's see, where am I? Okay, we can, we can apply that in a host of ways. What's the reason for it? What's the reason for the second commandment? Well, there's a main reason given, uh, but there's a host of others that it's connected to. So the main reason is in this little phrase, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Like the reason I don't want you making representations of me mentally or physically, and the reason I don't want you worshiping them is because I'm a jealous God. And we hear that word jealousy, and we immediately have associations. There's a a sinful jealousy, which we're most accustomed to. And that sinful jealousy is like this mad possessiveness or this frantic, obsessive envy to seize something that doesn't belong to us, want something that someone else has. Obviously, this isn't the jealousy it's speaking of. The jealousy it's speaking of here is an aspect of genuine love, of covenant love. You can't have covenant love without this jealousy. It's a righteous emotion. And so this jealousy is a zeal to preserve the covenant relationship. And it's a protective wrath against anything that would tear up the covenant relationship. So jealousy is part of a good marriage. A husband and wife ought to be jealous for each other this way. A husband and wife that didn't care much about deepening their relationship with one another or about defending their marriage from an adulterer or some outsider or anything that would distract them from each other would be grossly lacking in covenant love for each other. So look at what God's saying that he, look at God's attitude towards you in Christ. God presents him in covenant marriage with his people. And what he's saying, he's, I love you so intentionally and passionately that I want you to love me intentionally and passionately in return. I want your heart. I don't want you giving it to another. And when you do that, when you make a physical or mental image, you effectively convert me into someone I'm not, effectively into a false God another God, which is then to commit spiritual adultery against me. And I'll be jealous for you. I want you. I want you to know me as I am. I mean, that, that is a great, I mean, that, that is a stirring motive for this command. Now, it, it's, it's related to others as well. Let's think of some others, why God would use, uh, give us the second commandment. One is, I got several, One is, God's saying, don't make an image of me because I'm spirit. I'm spirit. I'm invisible and incomprehensible, meaning, like, I'm not limited in space to a body. I'm not growing and developing as if I have different parts. I'm composite. I'm not a slave or subject to fluctuating emotions, somewhat out of control. I'm spirit. Spirit. Along with that, God says, don't make an image because I'm free. I'm free. You aren't to think that you can control me or get a handle on me or even manipulate me to do what you want me to do. I'm not to be in your back pocket. You're not to go pick me up, take me places, and put me back. I'm free and sovereign. God says, don't make an image because I'm glorious. I'm glorious. Any image of me would necessarily bring me down to your level. It would lower me. It would put me in a box. It would restrict me to certain attributes. 
don't lower me. God says, don't make an image because I'm your covenant God. You don't have to strive to get access to me or get a word in with me as if you need an image of me to do so. I'm the one who took the initiative to know you and make a commitment to know you. I'm coming after you. I want to be in relationship with you. God says, don't make an image of me because you are made in the image of God. I'm the one who makes images, you don't make images. And I created you to reflect me. And I want you to get to know me by loving and serving one another and caring for others. Look at the image of God in others. Yes, it's broken and torn and twisted because of the fall, but it's still a part of who you are. And then finally, then another way is, God says, I want you to be people of the word. I don't want you making images. I want you to know me and communicate with me through my word. Fill your minds with my word. Be hungry for my word. Learn of my nature and attributes through my word. Worship me in the way my word tells you to. Be people of the word. That's how faith is generated and grown. And then finally, what we'll look at in just a minute, God says, don't make images because I sent to you my perfect image, the Lord Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. What's the result of breaking the second commandment? I mean, God's so intent on us keeping this commandment that he associates a curse and a blessing with it. And, and we could say a lot about that, but the cursing comes like this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And that's not the only place in scripture God speaks like that. And so on one level, you just say a father and a mother who worship God through mental or physical images of God according to their own imaginations and preferences and tastes and priorities, it's gonna be damaging to their family. It's gonna be destructive, harmful to their family. It's gonna lead to negative consequences. It just will. I mean, we know the effects of, 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 of people in our lives who have given a bad example or bad teaching and, and the consequences it has on us. We might not be able to conceive of God as Father because of the way our Father treated us. And so there's natural, even sociological consequences that come that God is highlighting here. But even more than that, or, or along with that, those aren't just independent. Um, there's a sense of covenant solidarity in the judgment of God. It's like if you're standing in the ocean and the tide is pulling you out. If you've had negative presentations of this and examples of this and teaching of this in your life, it's like there's a downward slide to wickedness and to distorted understanding of God. It just comes more natural. Uh, but notice this isn't inevitable that it's not like if you put the right data into a person, you're necessarily gonna get the right result out of the person. We are worshiping beings, our children are responsible agents. They interact with the nurture we give them or the, the influences of, 
others around them, they interact with it. And so he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. There was a response there. It's a warning. It's a warning to us. But then there's a blessing. And notice the blessing far outweighs the warning. Thomas Watson, the Puritan says, mercy more, more overflows in God than sin in us. Do you know that today? His mercy can drown great sins as the sea covers great rocks. So you think of big pitfalls that you may have made in your past and they just loom over you. Imagine an ocean just covering them up. The mercy of God is greater than the greatest sin you may have committed. And so here, though we talk about three or four generations, it's not a mathematical formula, it's, it's, a, it's presented as, as, as a covenant continuing in the generations, but then you have unto a thousand generations, much more abundant, and that's where he puts the stress. The promise is much abundant, more abundant than the warning, and it's just encouraging parents as you seek to worship the true God in the right way and to conceive of him as he's revealed himself to scriptures, you're gonna influence your family for good. You're gonna put a slippery slope that goes to righteousness. It's just gonna be more natural to move in the direction of God. Ultimately, God has to change the heart anyway, but on the human plane, it's just more natural to move in the direction of a righteous life. However, that's not inevitable. Notice, those who love me and keep my commandments. We're moral agents. We have to respond to the nurture of our parents. Young people, we have to respond to the nurture of our parents. And there's a result. How can we keep it? How can we keep it? Well, we know we don't keep it well. We know we fall short. We know we emphasize some attributes over others. We know we view God incorrectly as part of being fallen people. So to just notice a few things. One, the second commandment wasn't given in Egypt before God redeemed his people. It wasn't get the second commandment right and I'll get you out of Egypt. God already redeemed his people by grace, by his sovereign grace, and they didn't do anything, then brought them to his mountain as his redeemed people and said, okay, now, you know what? You get to leave those awful gods you had to worship over there or that influenced your way of viewing me, and you get to know that I'm your loving husband who wants you and wants the best for you. It's it's built on grace. Also notice that God sent his son and it explodes the second commandment. And so if we imagine the ark and those two cherubim with their wings outstretched and it was vacant in the middle of them, part of the reason it was vacant is that God was telling his people, the king hasn't come yet, but he's coming. My image is coming and that's the one you need to keep this commandment. And so Jesus comes and Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians 2 says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews says he's the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus said to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
John 1 says about Jesus, he exegetes the Father. If you've seen him, again, you've seen the heart of God. And so Packer's wonderful quote, God the Father is altogether Jesus-like. And that is the most breathtaking news that anyone can ever hear. You look in the scriptures and you see Jesus' heart to sinners, his mercy to broken people, his holiness, his justice, his sacrifice, his care, his glory, and you see God. And moreover, God is saying, if you wanna worship me rightly, you get to know my son, and you worship my son. You treasure him, you trust in him, you ask him for help, you be grateful to him. You know God by knowing my son. And you see, the son comes because he pays for all the ways you've broken this commandment. And then he satisfies it fully on your behalf so that before God, you are a keeper of the second commandment. And you're accepted by God upon his finished work on your behalf and you're joined to him. Notice, you're joined to the very image of God, meaning you don't have to come up with some physical representation or mental representation to get access to God. You are joined to God through his perfect image, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have unbridled access to God. And you know what else? As you're joined to Jesus by the Spirit, he's renewing you in the image of God to where you're becoming more like Jesus, the true image of God. And that's exciting. And one day when you see him, you will be just like him, reflecting God accurately. And so God tells us in our worship, even as he told the disciples when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's full of glory and God the Father booms with his voice and says, this is my son, listen to him. What we're called to do is to listen to Jesus. That's what we gather. He's the one preaching to us really. We listen to him and we become more enthralled by him and his grace. And we engage in worship as he's prescribed us to worship him. We saturate ourselves with the word. We pray as a people. We sing as a people. We engage in the sacraments. Notice, those are symbols, images that tell us about the gospel. God condescends to our need to see something, but he's instituted them for us. We engage in worship to know God even as revealed to us in scripture. In all this, God has liberated us from the damaging and destructing effects in our lives of conceiving of God in a way he's not. He's freed you from it. And in all this, God says, I love you to such an extent that I'll send my very image in order that he might bring you into fellowship with me, pay for your sins, give you righteousness, that you might be in a solid, unbreakable marriage covenant with me. And that's what I want. And the love of God just shines through in this command. And may it stir your hearts as a people this week. Amen. Let's stand.